Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. This is Surprised by Grief. My name is Daniel Harrell. I'm editor-in-chief at Christianity Today. My wife, Dawn, died of pancreas cancer back in April of 2019 on Easter Sunday. Hi, I'm Clarissa Mall. My husband was author and CT editor Rob Mall. Rob died in a hiking accident in July 2019 on our family's vacation. Daniel, I've been looking forward to this episode a lot, I think, because you are a pastor. (laughs) And through my experience with grief, I have longed for that kind of intimate pastoral conversation. So I'm really looking forward to today. I know, though, that pastoring through grief has got to be incredibly complex. Uh, You're both leader and griever. You're suffering, and yet you have to show a path forward. What was that experience like to have to lead and also have your own wounds so visible to others? Yeah, it was a tough road to walk for sure, but at the same time, one that had a lot of light on it too. You know, we pastors, we you know, like to think we spend most of our time in leadership and planning and preaching and but, you know, invariably God interrupts with the pastoral care that we are ultimately called to and never imagining in any of that that at some point those tables would be turned. And I've been one through my own experience and I think just through the theology I embrace to recognize that, you know, Jesus invites us to carry a cross and to die to ourselves and that whatever our life looks like on earth, we all die. It's the one way we're each like Jesus without even having to try. So when the cancer came, we did what we would want our church to do, which is we called one of the pastors and our associate pastor, who is our pastoral care pastor, accompanied us to the hospital, sat with us through the diagnosis. And immediately after we scheduled a church prayer meeting and the turnout was overwhelming. And Folks gathered and we sang and we laid hands on my wife and we prayed fervently for healing and for health and with tears and with hope. And I remember specifically at the end that I got up to share how people could help and had a list of things. And man, it was just overwhelming how people not only responded there, but over the course of the next two months that Dawn was alive, just Every day we would go to the front step and there'd be food or flowers or some kind of care package from different members of the church. And we honestly were never without a a need during all of those days for anything. It was so beautiful. And I remember back with such fondness at how kind everyone was. And but at the same time, I you know, I think there were some interesting aspects of it too. On the one hand, as a pastor, you're kind of caught in this weird space where you never stop being a pastor. And so as 
we're suffering, Dawn's dying. There's this sense of like, how do we pastor the people who are pastoring us? Because it was their grief too, because they were experiencing this loss of, of this person who, if they didn't know personally, they knew publicly. You know, I have memories of numerous conversations where uh, members of the congregation would come and they would say, you know, we know that people die and get cancer, but the fact that this happened to you is somehow shaken my own faith. You know, that idea that somehow we pastors are immune to suffering because we're closer to Jesus or something. And all of these emotions just came pouring out of people. And, you know, the church uh, put together the funeral and it was glorious. And even, you know, now Dawn's ashes rest on the church grounds, which they moved to that spot. And so she rests there with the people who loved her. And it's great comfort to me to know that they have loved her. You know, at the same time, on the heels of that, you know, I was ready to pastor, to continue that pastoring, having suffered this loss, thinking that it had shaped me and that the road I would lead this congregation down would now be framed by this grief and this death that is going to be universally experienced by us all and sort of sits in the midst of the theology of the cross. But it was just very difficult for the congregation to want to do that beyond the caregiving time. Once the funeral was over and the burial had happened, it was time to move forward and move forward meant leaving behind that grief that was you know, still so embedded in my life. And so we weren't able to move forward together. I hear so much energy and mobilization around Don's diagnosis and the prayer. It feels like people had a purpose until she died. Yeah. That everybody was working together, you know, rooting for a yes. And it ended up that the prayers were a no. And I wonder if there's a piece of us that is just not capable of receiving that hard of a no. And I wonder if you felt some of that, that people couldn't figure out how to interpret such a closed door. Yeah, it brings to mind a couple of things. I mean, I've always been amused how in the narthex or in the lobby of a church when people are discussing or hearing about a member who's died, one of the first questions they ask is, uh, well, how old was she? And of course, that's a signal. They're doing the math in their own head to try to get a sense of what about me. And I think similarly with this resistance to the no is this need we have to take care of ourselves in a sense that, okay, I'm going to be okay. That if I say yes, and if I say God is saying yes in this way that makes a bad thing good, then you know I don't have to, to feel the effects or worry about the effects or fear the effects or the reality of a no in my own life. Mm-hmm. And we protect ourselves in that way because we are so scared of dying. And for Dawn, who knew her diagnosis was terminal, you know, the hardest thing that she had to do was say her own no to people who just insisted that her attitude be brighter, that just insisted that she accept their prayers for miraculous recovery. It's just hard. And, you know, we want to work around. We want to, we want good news that just doesn't have any bad news in it. I wonder if part of that is that we don't know the sweetness of knowing Christ and his sufferings. Mm. After Rob died, 
A friend sent me a picture of the Eisenheim altarpiece that Matthias Grunewald painted. It's in a museum in France now. And he painted it in the Middle Ages for a monastery where monks were caring for plague victims. And I looked at it and I was stunned. Here was a picture of Jesus on the cross and all over his body were sores. And they weren't just like red chicken pox sores. Some of them were dark colored and grotesque. And as I looked at that picture of Jesus on the cross, I imagined what these plague victims who were being cared for in this monastery would have thought as they saw Mm. Jesus, a Jesus who looked like them. And I imagined the sweetness that would have come to them in seeing a Jesus that understood and shared their suffering. And I wonder if that's just something that until you are willing to step forward into the pain of grief or sorrow or suffering, you don't see the sweetness that's on the other side of that, that in the midst of your suffering, Jesus is present and you can become less resistant to trying to push away grief or the hard things in your life, and you can welcome them as an opportunity to be present with Jesus. Mm, that's a great insight. You know, it reminds me of that moment in John's gospel where, you know, Jesus appears to Thomas with his scars still intact, that, you know, resurrection still carries the marks of suffering, that the two are just part of the same thing, and that we really can't appreciate the power of resurrection until we experience the depths of the cross. And I remember, you know, talking with Dawn so deeply during her illness of the way that her faith came so fully to bear. And I don't know, Clarissa, I've heard you say these very same things, you know, that at Rob's death and the awful aftermath, you know, your faith is not vanished. It may have morphed and shifted and, taken on different hues, but it's been proven in some incredible ways that, I don't know, for me, I'm like, man, if I could have that kind of faith without the hardship, that'd be awesome. Yeah. Well, I think it can be easy to look at someone, and I feel this as a person who has experienced a sudden and traumatic loss, that it can be easy for people to look at me, I think, and say, wow, you know, she's kept the faith. This is amazing. I could never do that. And you and I, we are not valiant people. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Right. We are human and we are fumbling along and we are leaning on Jesus. And this is not some kind of Olympic performance that we are doing here. And I think for me, it's always turning people to, okay, what is the suffering in your own life? Where are you feeling grief? Is it a relational situation that is just eating you up inside? Is it a job strain where you just feel a sense of insecurity that persists? What is the place of suffering and how can you meet Jesus there? You don't have to wait for your loved one to die in a car accident to meet Jesus in this way. Not only does it demystify suffering, but it demystifies what we actually are going through as grieving people. Oh, you can connect with me. And what I long for is to be a space where we don't need to compartmentalize our suffering, where suffering or sorrow or grief doesn't have to just be related to funerals. 
but we can say, these are the things that weigh my heart down. And we could talk about those things intimately and honestly, transparently. And we discover, oh, wow, Jesus is present in all of this. Yeah. And this is the irony, right? That we have the narrative for suffering and redemption. We have the space in our theology where you can bring your sorrow in its rawest sense and meet the power and comfort of Christ. And not only meet him there, but I think discover a a kind of depth and profundity that allows us to understand what is fully and truly human, that, you know, in our finitude, you know, in our frailty, in our ultimate ending, when we breathe our last, we are not only recognizing who we fully are, but recognizing the depths to which Christ was willing to descend in the incarnation because he loved us. And that's a deep comfort to me. And I want everyone to experience that. Yeah. Well, I think death does this unique thing in our lives. It shows us the very real limits of our control. Mm. Because in a lot of ways, even in the sufferings that we experience that are not death-related, we still feel a sense of control. I mean, we feel like we have some way of negotiating the outcomes. We pray and our prayers are answered. Oh, God must be good. And and so in some ways, it's like we have the strings and God is our puppet. And in death, oh boy, do we realize that we have absolutely no control over how this goes. And we have no control over God either. Yeah, that's true. And for me, my grief has brought me back to that place and the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus talks about not worrying about your life and the day's troubles being sufficient for the day and letting tomorrow take care of itself. I mean, grief is such a present maker. There is this, I think, important aspect of living what God gives each day, that daily bread, and recognizing that the future and the fullness of life is not ours to control and that what we have is truly gift. And there's a a kind of ironic joy that comes with that suffering of loss that, for me, it just opened me up to recognizing that the things that matter most are laid bare in our grief for us to see. And as our grief begins to ebb, there's a determination for me that set in to live those things and not ignore them as I feel I had before. I like that word determination, because I think that kind of determination has been something that I have claimed as an anchor as I've moved forward with grief. When I look at verses in the Bible or sections of the Bible that have been a comfort to me, honestly, the curse in Genesis has been a real comfort to me. Really? (laughs) Yes. Uh, Till the end of your days, this is your lot to toil on earth that wants to be unresponsive to experience pain in childbirth. This is your lot. And we start at the beginning of the Bible with this, and then God shows us how to live until those things are made right. And for me, that has been really orienting for me. Okay, if this is the way it's going to be, how can I face this life with determination that says, I'm not going to be conquered by 
the pain and the suffering. I'm going to let it teach me instead. I'm going to let it soften me in all the ways that I need to be softened to shape my life in the ways I need to be shaped. I've really liked the curse in Genesis, I think, because it's real and honest about the way my life looks. And it also points me to when things will be made right. And so for me, that's a real place of hope. Mm, That's so true. And I think that one of the things that was striking to me in the midst of all of this too, is I had, of course, my church, I was pastoring here in Minneapolis, but was overwhelmed as well by the way my former church in Boston got engaged. I'd been there for 20 years and Dawn and I had married there. And that was a beautiful thing too. And I think was a reminder of that our churches are really our church and that they extend beyond the places where we spend portions of life to really encompass this greater communion of saints that we get a taste of on earth. Now, I know you had two churches, right? Because I mean, you guys came from Washington and just been in Boston for a little bit when Rob died. That's right. Yeah, your story resonates so deeply because uh, we lived that same reality of having the church be more than just the local congregation. When I was sitting in therapy and with my grief therapist, the fall after Rob died, I shared with her a frustration that I had had recently. I had talked to a friend and just needed to unburden my heart. And I wanted a listening ear. And what I received was a task list. And I was really discouraged. And I sat in my therapist's office and I said, I feel like I'm not getting the support that I need. And she said, well, what was this friend good at? And I hadn't really ever thought of that before, but that friend had been a person that I went to when I needed a problem solved, not Mm -hmm. when I needed a listening ear. And that conversation really helped me to realize the giftedness that each person had in my life. And I think when it came to church and having churches in two different places, I really saw that highlighted, that the giftedness of my local congregation was one thing. And then I had a giftedness in my congregation across the country. And altogether, these people were the church. In my local congregation, I was blessed to be a part of a culture that wasn't afraid to talk about death. I count that a unique blessing. We'd only been attending the church for a year after Rob died, but they weren't afraid of my loss. And I remember sitting in a Sunday school class about death and dying and feeling like I was heard and feeling like the sorrows of my heart were things that other people in that room were willing to talk about. And that really, really affirmed me. My church welcomed the insight of a grieving person, which (laughs) was amazing. They invited me to form a service for grieving people at the holidays. And it was a joy to see other people gather with their own places of loss and sorrow and to be able to worship together. And they offered lots of practical care, meals for days. (laughs) We're a church that still uses bulletins. And our family's name was written in that bulletin for a number of weeks after Rob died. And just even that concrete reminder that someone would take that home and stick it on their counter and maybe reread it later in the week and think to pray for us. Yeah. Those little personal gestures really meant a lot in a season where 
honestly, I felt like I was kind of floating along in church culture. You know, there's a distance that's created between you and other people in your loss. You're wondering, where do you belong anymore? For me, being young and widowed was particularly unique in my church body. Right. And, you know, I, I think about when I was a lifeguard in college and we would encourage kids to swim with a buddy, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. and I think in a way we need a buddy system in the church <laughs> for people who are walking through heavy, heavy things. Maybe it's a an assigned deacon who's checking in with you weekly for the first year after your loss or, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. you know, something that's not pastoral care. And I think there is a real sense of being unmoored after you have a major identity shifting loss that you endure. And that was certainly true for me. And so I learned, okay, you know, my local congregation is good at these things. These are their gifts. Don't ask them to be what they're not. Hmm. Let them be what they are and enjoy the wider body of Christ and what they can give to you. Look at the church as a bigger entity than just your local congregation. And I found that I got what I needed when I was willing to see the church as a much bigger body than just this one organization in town who I had previously relied on for all of my spiritual needs. That's so true. And I think that what I learned as a result of my experience is that we just have to let people love us the way they love us. And that, you know, our own expectations of you can only love me this way means that we're going to miss out on some ways that we needed to be loved and we didn't realize it. And that the level of the grief that you feel when you lose a spouse or a child or a parent, someone so deep and close to you is that you need that full body of Christ, the people who are going to love you one way and others that are going to love you another way. And, you know, of course, all pastors have our Messiah complexes and we're used to saving others. But, you know, when it comes to being vulnerable and and allowing people to surround us, there is that initial, you know, discomfort and resistance that comes with that sort of focus and attention. But it was at the same time, just so healing to have genuinely the body of Christ do what they're best at, you know, which is loving others. So I was grateful for that. And I appreciate kind of how you've connected to that too. Well, and that's where that, when the church suffers a loss of any kind, it's time for everyone to be mobilized and everyone to look at their own lives and say, what gift do I have to bring? Because everybody has something to bring to a person who is suffering. Maybe it's a skill. Maybe it's a commitment to writing a letter. Maybe it is a meal. The three things that I like to encourage churches when we're talking about gathering around people who are suffering are to be proactive, committed, and relational. I think a lot of churches kind of wait, they stand back, maybe um, they'll ask if they have a problem. You know, if there's a need, they'll let me know. But for most grieving people, it's really hard to be able to step forward and articulate their needs well. And so a church that is proactive and just stands ready to serve, I think is a church that can really enrich the lives of grieving people. And then a church that's committed A lot of churches are really good at spending time with grieving people in the first couple of weeks to months after their loss. But then after that, things start to drop off. And by six months, you know, there are a lot of people who are not even attending church anymore because they just 
feel like they don't know where they fit in. And so I encourage churches to remain committed even beyond that year mark. And commitment looks like all kinds of different things. But if we really believe, going back to the curse, that this is our life until Jesus comes again, then this is a long road that we're willing to walk with people. And I think for a lot of people, they don't realize how long that road actually will be. Mm. That's so true. And I think that, you know, we're quick fix kind of people and, you know, want the hurting and the hardship to stop as fast as it can. But to your point, I think when we stay the course and stay on that road, there is genuine goodness and depth and joy that comes that we would not have otherwise experienced had we not stayed on that course. But because we don't play it out completely, you know, we just never get a chance to taste it. And there's no way that you're going to know it otherwise. Well, and that's where that my third encouragement for churches is always be relational. Mm-hmm. That programs are great, they work well, but people are even better. And when you commit to walking with someone for the long haul through their suffering, inevitably you're going to hit your own experience of suffering. And then voila, you've got someone who you've been ministering to for a long time who has insight and comfort to offer you in your time of need. So it's really a both and kind of experience. We do these things not only because they build others up, but we know that we comfort with the comfort that we've received. And so we know that at some point in this long journey together, as we journey home, we will run into suffering of our own and we'll have these intimate relationships on which to rely when we need them too. This episode is brought to you by Tyndale and the new book, Hang On, Let Go. What to do when your dreams are shattered and life is falling apart. If you or someone you know is walking through a first-class crisis, whether a financial crisis, a health crisis, or a relationship crisis, Tyndale has just released a new book by best-selling author Frank Viola. The book is called Hang On, Let Go. What to do when your dreams are shattered and life is falling apart. The book is a time-tested field guide for navigating the worst storms of life when you feel like you're going through the ninth circle of hell. Check it out at hangonletgo.com or any online bookstore. Yeah, I've almost taken to substituting the word relationship with just the word friendship because it feels like in churches relationship quickly morphs into relational ministry and suddenly we've got these sort of structured relationships that come with a a set of this and that, like you say, kind of programmed. And when we talk about just the word relationship, it seems to have lost some of the informality that I think is necessary to do what you're describing. So the, you know, the language, I think of friendship, you know, somebody who's going to be a friend in my grief, you know, Mm -hmm. brings a different set of expectations that, you know, there's not a program, there aren't you know, boxes to check. There aren't rules that have to be adhered to, but there's a presence and a love and a companionship that is part and parcel of being a friend that, I don't know, maybe just frees people up a little bit to step into that space and realize it doesn't have to be done just so. Mm, I love that. And I have a friend who recently lost a loved one. And when we were talking about that loss, she said, he's with Rob now. And I thought, oh, 
look at that. Rob even enjoys the friendship <laughs> of this person. Yeah. And that kind of friendship within the body is an encouragement, even when you've lost your loved one, that they enjoy that continuing friendship that we have as members of the same body. Yeah, that's true. So after Don died, I'm wondering what were the sort of main sources of support that you leaned on and where you found them? Well, and that's sort of the sad part, you know, of the story and that after the funeral, you know, the church was needing to move forward as everybody does. And I remember a, a friend who had lost a loved one saying to me, you know, everybody's going to move on before you do. And, and that's true. But I think in a real way, you know, my congregation both was concerned for me that I would be able to do that having lost my wife. But I think they were also tired in a way. This had been such an intense season of grief that to uh, extend that any further was just too hard. And so I found myself stepping outside of that church space and into some of the other places that we traditionally go that are set up for this, grief groups, uh, grief counseling. And the grief counseling was fantastic and would so recommend that to everyone. But it made me wonder how we as congregations can do a little better. Our pastoral care team did have people who stayed in touch, and I appreciated that effort. But I think what I really wanted was for the church or members of our church to sort of have been affected like I was, which I know is unrealistic, but to be affected like I was in a way that somehow together our healing would have been more communal than it turned out to be. Well, one of the things that grief groups and counseling can give the impression of is that the kind of companionship that grieving people need is something that requires expertise. So I think for churches, one way I want to encourage churches is you don't have to be experts at this. You don't need to have a Stephen ministry program. You don't need to have grief share running uh, as a group, a formalized group in your church. You know, if the church has farmed out grief, I worry that sometimes it's because we have believed that we didn't have the credentials for it. And I think if you have suffered anything in your life, anything at all, (laughs) and you believe the gospel, there you go. You got your credentials. And from there on, it's really just a commitment to the kind of friendship that we talked about mm-hmm. of sticking with somebody, being a listening ear, resisting the urge to correct or to advise, but simply being someone who's committed to walking alongside of someone who's grieving. And if you do that, then all of these awesome community resources like hospice groups and counseling services, which we both have really benefited from, Mm -hmm. they can offer the kind of supplemental care and the church can really become the family support that will travel with grieving people long after your insurance has said, oh, you've had enough counseling sessions for this year. We've got no more, right? And and then a grieving person who has come to the end of their, their health insurance options doesn't need to feel bereft. Like mm-hmm. I've got nothing left. No, because the church really has been the foundational source of support. And all of these other things provided niche care or uh, care for a particular season. Yeah. And just thinking back to the familiar litany from Paul, uh, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, never fails. I mean, that call 
to love just applies so strongly. And, you know, when you're grieving, you are, are so open to the power of love. I think that for us to encourage one another in that way, it's just so important. Yeah, I agree. Surprised by grief, uh, Daniel Harrell. We're going to think a little bit about funerals. We actually held two funerals uh, for Dawn: one here where we were living in, in Minneapolis, and the second uh, in Boston, which is a, a big community for us. And you know, she wanted to have a, a funeral that acknowledged um, death and resurrection. We live in a culture where there's so much in funeral worship around celebration of life and. While that's a good thing, I think there was this acknowledgement too that resurrection happens with death that was very critical. And so we did that and we sang the songs, we prayed the prayers, we we worshiped God and put our hope in resurrection. And it was really important for us. Yeah, you know, Rob had written quite a bit about funeral worship in The Art of Dying. So he had thought through all of those things as a man in his 30s. And even though I didn't have mourning, we didn't have time, you know, I thought that funeral worship would be something that crossed my path when we were in our 70s or 80s. I did feel like Rob's wisdom guided me as I had to make decisions for that very first hard step into integrating my faith with my loss in a public way. Mm. Well, we're grateful to have uh, with us John Whitfleet, who has thought so much about funeral and worship and how it is we as Christians need to integrate these ancient gifts of our faith into our uh, remembrance of those who have died and our hope in the resurrection. So, John, thank you so much for being with us. Tell us a little bit about yourself, about the Calvin Institute for Christian Worship and the work you do there. Thanks so much, Daniel. Clarissa, it's an honor to be with you. I'm speaking today from Grand Rapids, Michigan, on the campus of Calvin University and Calvin Theological Seminary. The Calvin Institute of Christian Worship here is a ministry and study center, and we're eager to promote both the renewal of vital public worship practices, as well as the deeper study and reflection on those practices that draws on biblical studies, theology, the history of Christianity, awareness of Christianity in different cultural contexts all over the world and many other areas of expertise on a Christian university campus that can bring so much to our discussion. And I think how poignant that is, especially when we're talking about such a tender topic as a funeral service, this place where, you know, the affirmation of the faith of the church over the centuries is made, but also this adaptive response to unique circumstances. And one pastoral leader said to me recently, every funeral is a bit like jazz music. It's an occasion for an improvisation. No two funerals exactly alike. You know, I think a lot about that jazz metaphor. You need to know the chord pattern to do mm-hmm. jazz. You need to know the, the moves of the Christian faith. But then to be able to, to enter in and respond to the unique and often so tender context and dynamics of a particular death, a particular family, a particular community. You know, I was remembering as a, a pastor for so many years, I used to tell people how much I preferred doing funerals to weddings, mostly because I felt like some real ministry could happen uh, in that context. And I don't know, I wonder if you could just maybe as a way of refreshing or helping our listeners a bit, 
by just reminding us why funeral worship uh, is so important. Yeah. What a gift it is to have um, these many centuries of church practices to reflect on. And one of the gifts that that history brings us is a way to frame funeral worship or a funeral gathering. And I'm such a fan of uh, referring to these services as a service of witness to the resurrection, Mm. to your earlier point. Occasions where we assert the faith of the church, as well as acknowledging the specific gifts that God brought to us through the person that we are remembering. And it's such an opportunity for both lament and hope, both, you know, deep cries of anguish over what we've lost, only we have the opportunity to, to frame those cries of lament together and to have them point toward a certain end, which in Christ is ultimately hopeful. And it's also a powerful opportunity to affirm the beauty of our bodily existence. You know, calling it a service of witness to the resurrection affirms God's creational gift of our embodied existence and says that God is not yet finished with our embodied existence, albeit we look forward to following our Lord and enjoying a resurrection body one day. And I think maybe to your point, one thing that always strikes me is that none of us, no family, no individual, has the resources to sort of do all of this on our own, by ourselves, in moments of great trauma. And so, Clarissa, what a gift to have your husband's wisdom to draw on. And what a gift for all of us to nurture cultures in congregations of really thoughtful funerals. And I'm reminded of a congregation that was known years later by some friends of mine as a place that had really wonderful funerals by which they meant occasions of honesty, gratitude, sometimes even laughter, and profound theological hope. I think that's not bad for pastors and other church leaders to say, we want to be the place that has really thoroughly Christian funerals. So I'm thinking of your word adaptive. I really like that because I think the loss of a loved one, uh, whether we anticipate it or it comes as a shock to us, requires an amazing capacity for adaptation in a very small sliver of time. And I'm wondering how particular traditions of the church or rhythms of church life can help a grieving person to make that adaptation, to facilitate it personally, but also in the context of the body. Yeah. Well, I come from a tradition, the Reformed Presbyterian tradition broadly, that goes way back, of course, to the Reformation period. But in a period where John Calvin and other reformers were pretty eager to not have the church too involved in funerals because of what they perceived to be problems related to superstitious treatments of the body. And as a result, funerals were viewed as family services where the family would request the assistance of clergy to lead what is essentially a family occasion. But increasingly, I think that in today's cultural context, with biblical literacy being relatively low, that it actually is really good for us to think of these as events that are lovingly provided by a congregation or church community. They are ecclesial events at their best, I think. And thoughtful pastors can do so much to guide a process of adaptive planning. And so it might be a question to grieving family members, what is it that you'd love and cherish and would want named and remembered? And what 
portions of scripture are particularly significant to you as a family? And what songs have given voice to your faith as a family, as well as to the individual? And what particular needs are present right now that the person who died could never have envisioned? And there's a, a way in which a person planning their own service can only ever get so far because they will never know the unique circumstances in which that funeral will be set. And it means that thoughtful pastor leaders need to do that pastoral jazz really well, listening to family members, but then also having a repertoire of church practices to draw on, uh, songs of faith, multiple scripture readings, and prayers that give room for both lament and thanksgiving. And I do think that there's been a, a movement perhaps over the past generation or two toward ever more personalized funerals. And there's a beauty in that, a specificity in that, a way of remembering the unique gifts that God has given to us through the person who's deceased. Sometimes that comes at the expense of shared practices and uh, a shared faith and becomes such a personalized focus on the person who died that there's actually very little attention in the end on the God who created us and has redeemed us, even if the person who's died has expressed wishes that the focus be on God. Mm. And of course, it's always both. But there is a, a concern there. Mm -hmm. I like that. So I kind of want to pivot a little bit here and ask you a question. Uh, when I was planning funeral worship with my pastor for Rob's funeral, he asked me what psalms I would like to have included in the service. And I said to him, the one psalm I don't want is Psalm 23. Uh, I mm. felt like it was stereotypical. And he he pressed in on that a little bit and said, hey, you know what? These are good words. Don't write them off because they are already written on your heart because they're so familiar to you that, you know, they feel like they should be on a condolence card. And we talked about it and I put them in there and boy, in the moment, that was the solace I needed. And I never could have seen that coming. And, I, you know, I know that you have done some work with Psalms, and I wonder if you could talk about how the Psalms in particular get us ready for this. Uh, you know, how do they serve us in these moments of need? Yeah, I love the way you started the question by describing how the pastor asked you which Psalms, plural. <laughs> uh, what a beautiful thing. I'm so amazed every time I turn to the Psalms at the range of emotion conveyed, sometimes within a single Psalm, but certainly across a section of Psalms. And I think there's great wisdom there. Every funeral brings together so many different kinds of emotions. And I think that if I could make one recommendation for funeral, I'd just follow the lead of your pastor. Every funeral ought to have multiple Psalms. Wouldn't that be beautiful? I love it. And perhaps. To even go one step further, perhaps the question would be, is there a psalm of lament that particularly speaks in this moment? Is there a psalm of gratitude that speaks in this moment? Is there a psalm of trust, like Psalm 23, or perhaps 16 would be an alternative? And then is there a psalm of praise? And in that way, the juxtaposition of these texts says something very powerful about life in Christ, life in community, life in a public event where if there are four people gathered or 40 or 400, 
all those emotions will be present. And each one of those moves within the Psalms will speak to us in different ways. That would be a stretch, though, for a lot of people. And uh, yet I think it's a, a way of stretching and growing our funeral practices that holds much promise. You know, I'm thinking about churches that might not have sort of liturgical templates to play off of and maybe do a little more free form. And thinking of all the conversations as a pastor I had with grieving families who you know, brought in all sorts of interesting ideas for what they would like to happen in a funeral. And, you know, your tendency as a pastor is to want to do whatever the family wants for the sake of assisting them in their grief. But hmm, there's some things that I was like, I'm not sure about that. And I wondered, uh, like, do you have a list of some funeral Mm no-nos? One of the greatest challenges for pastors ever, especially when a given idea, you realize, is something that they will probably live to regret one day. And what a challenge to negotiate that. I don't think there's a simple solution or approach, but I do think that a pastor who comes with a very strong template or pattern uh, for a funeral service, a pattern which includes scripture and public prayer and space for the multiple, say, kinds of Psalms that we just talked about, that if you begin a conversation with that and ask questions out of that template, then a a good portion of the service is given a gospel shape to start with. And then sometimes the, uh, the creative ideas, the uniquely personal ideas, you know, they each need to be treated a bit uniquely, of course, depending on the circumstances. Uh, But sometimes those can be woven in in ways that don't actually do harm to the overall shape of the service. You know, a given pastor says, well, the family today has thrown out the funeral playbook and we're going to do something entirely that I've never done before. That's of concern to me. But a a pastor who in leading people through time-tested practices can pause during, let's say, a prayer of gratitude to say, oh, this family gives thanks for things I wouldn't have thought to give thanks for, and then can name some of those things. Or in other words, there becomes a place within the gospel shape of that template to do, let's say, some, perhaps even many of the um, ideas and suggestions that come from a family. And I've known a thoughtful pastor or two who've taken a few ideas that have come from family and said, that is a great idea, but let's incorporate that in our family remembrance time before the public funeral actually starts. You know, one thing we didn't touch on and and struck me as you were mentioning just this, we didn't say, haven't said anything about music or about eulogies. Right. Eulogies, um, what a beautiful thing. So often a a chance to hear in detail a good word, uh, literally about the person who's deceased. To me, the eulogies can be very beautiful often need some pastoral guidance that a person who is in an emotionally fraught time of their own grieving is equipped to think well about what they will say and be happy with what they said, you know, weeks and months later, too. I think a lot of pastoral leaders can offer the opportunity to be the the curator or synthesizer of insight. And some families will will insist, no, that there's someone who will eulogize. But often, if a pastor offers that, that will be a gift. And then maybe my main advice about that is that it not be at the center of a service. If the center of the service is scripture reading, songs of faith, 
prayers and a pastoral sermon or homily, uh, however brief or long it might be, by a pastor leader, if that's in place, then having it be supplemented with eulogies, just that takes the pressure off a eulogy in a way that often makes a transformative difference. And music, such a powerful gift. Sometimes we hear music at funerals and we hear it as the songs chosen by the one who died. We hear it as really an expression of their faith. That's a beautiful thing. We also sometimes can be invited into musical choices that are made by a grieving family, even if the person who died didn't know the song, but where we as a community are invited to sing a song that means a great deal, perhaps to a young child that's present. Personally, I think that uh, whenever possible, congregational singing is such a gift. There is something so powerful about singing together, but then also if we individually are grieving and frankly unable to sing, to realize that the song of the community carries us along, even when we can't ourselves sing. Just that is a gift and really a metaphor for the entire Christian life. You know, for families who are grieving, funeral worship is, it's not an end only, it is a beginning also, right? So in your work in service of the church, I wonder how you see ongoing remembrance of the deceased playing a role in church life. And uh, what can that look like for churches who want to continue remembering, which of course for grieving families is just absolutely vital to feel like their person hasn't been forgotten uh, as the days, months, years go by? I immediately think about how different communities in different ways have times or occasions in the year for this remembrance. So I recall visiting a congregation where on Easter Sunday, they would list in their printed order of service or perhaps project on a screen every member of that community who had died in the past year and then read the trumpet words of 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection of the body. It was a thoroughly Jesus-centered affirmation about what Easter means for us as grieving people, and they did that every single Easter. I think of another community where that will happen associated with All Saints Day toward the end of October or another community where it happens on um, New Year's Day with a special service every year that marks time by looking back over the past year and ahead to the next year. What a beautiful gift. One of the nice parts about that is that pastor leaders in a church can then invite family members and help them anticipate that time as a time of memory. And often that prompts a different level of engagement with a church community And it might be a month or 11 or 12 months after the funeral, but there's a sort of built-in point of intentionality every year. What a gift. That's great. Uh, So John, I mean, I think about, you know, gosh, all my years as a pastor and, you know, funeral worship is really not an exception to my work, but part and parcel of what I, I wanted my congregation to be able to step into. And what can we as pastors do week in, week out to, to make this happen well? Yeah. In almost every public worship gathering all year long, some people will be present who are dealing with death in a very deeply personal way. That's every single week of the year. And it's increasingly occurred to me that every single week we gather for worship, there are things that are deeply traumatic, often violent, that are happening in culture all around us. And our immediate access to global news through the internet makes that you know, vividly present to just about all of us, 
on any given Sunday before we arrive at a church service. And in light of this, it's become increasingly clear to me that often what we do in church gives us practice at not dealing with this. We get practice at ignoring death and violence and trauma. And to me, this is one of the most urgent pastoral needs before us. And this is not really, for me, an invitation to make weekly worship just more dour or sad or distressed, because, of course, we also are dealing with life and redemption and stunning examples of God's transforming presence in people's lives every week, too. So I do think that weekly worship needs space for lament and for naming death, violence, and trauma and praying about it, and for naming divine transformation and redemption. And I guess to me, the the most direct and simple approach for this is for pastors and other pastoral leaders to really restore and strengthen weekly communal prayer practices. Not every sermon can cover all that territory well. And not every uh, you know set of songs that is chosen for a given service can do that every single week equally well. But if in a congregation there is always public prayer that pauses to be intentional about death and grieving as well as God's transformative presence, I think that makes a tremendous difference over time. Jesus, when you're gonna wake up, when you're gonna wake up and calm this raging sea. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the show, we'd love it if you could subscribe, rate it, and leave us a review in iTunes. If you have feedback for us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at podcasts at christianitytoday.com. Surprised by Grief is a production of Christianity Today. It's produced by Mike Cosper. It was written by Daniel Harrell and Clarissa Mall. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Our music is by the Porter's Gate. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again soon. So Jesus, when you're gonna wake up, when you're gonna wake up and calm this raging sea, Jesus.